regardless of your background, I think there's no single person that would have covered all the, the all the different elements of that role in any case historically. So you are looking for someone not necessarily with deep. I mean, obviously you need a sufficient level of uh, background, technical and quantitative and financial knowledge. Otherwise, you can't do the role at all. But beyond that, you wouldn't be necessarily looking for someone who's done everything that your role would throw at you from day one. Because I think that person just doesn't exist in this in this day and age. Welcome to CFO Talks by Aspire, a podcast where we showcase leaders who are bringing finance back to the driving seat of their company's growth in Southeast Asia and beyond. I'm your host, Joel, and welcome to CFO Talks. Today, I'm here with Dom, CFO of Endowers. So I'm really excited because Dom has a bit of an unusual background, uh, particularly as a CFO. He's had a couple of big strategy names like McKinsey and also spent a lot of time with Stan Chart. Maybe Don, if you want to give us a bit of an intro about yourself. Yeah, sure. Um, so like uh, like Joel said, so basically my my career is mainly, actually for a CFO, a little bit unusual. Uh, maybe I'll start with that. This is actually my first CFO role. But the interesting thing about it is I feel like every piece of my you know past background has come together to help me actually execute this role. So I started off, um, as Joel said, advising banks and uh, financial institutions in Sydney, Australia, uh, at McKinsey. Did that for a few years before uh, getting married, moving back to Singapore, and then joining Standard Chartered uh, for 10 years, Singapore and Hong Kong, a variety of different roles, both in strategy, but later on in the business as well. I also had a role where I was creating uh, quant underlines for the bank to create products to sell to the bank's clients. Then I had a three-year stint. Immediately prior to joining it, I was at a three-year stint with a boutique quantitative asset management startup called Radiant. Brilliant Global Advisors. I was their institutional uh, business development head for that. Uh, later on, I joined and that was about two years ago as CFO and head of strategic partnerships. And that's where I am now. I, I think before the show, you know, we were also talking a little bit about this being your first CFO gig and, you know, you also knowing a couple of folks who have maybe taken a bit of this unconventional journey. Yeah. What sort of made you cross that bridge, right? From maybe the business side to, to CFO side of things. Well, I think, well, I mean, to be quite frank, it, it's largely because the opportunity came up and I thought it was an exciting one, an exciting opportunity to join Dallas. Really, that was the, the, main, uh, the main reason for it. I think when you join a startup, you invariably wear different roles, different hats anyway. I mean, if I start a little bit on my Dallas journey, I actually started as a client about three years ago. During COVID, a lot of people, you know, find more time, figure out your finances and I have been in banking and asset management for about, you know, over, over 10 years, close to 13 years and realized it was not easy to invest. So when I found, found time to, to review and all that, I decided that I found out, you know, found out about what Dallas did and was, I became a client. Actually, that was actually how things happened. Uh, not knowing, actually not knowing anyone at Dallas at that point in time. So what eventually happened was, uh, I got introduced to the founders, particularly Sam. And my first few meetings, I mean, it was just nothing to do with me as a client. It was just me telling him how, what a fantastic platform it was. And as they evolved to, uh, well, we did our first fundraise late 2020, early 2021. And when that happened, I also reached out to say, hey, you know what? I really want to join an exciting platform, exciting business like you. I love your business model. I think you've got things right. Uh, what, what roles, what, what do you have available in the sense that, um, you know, growing company, there's always going to be gaps and, and, and so on. So I just wanted to find out more. And the gap just happened to be Happened to be a CFO role, and they also needed someone to help out with partnerships. And eventually, I'm also handling business development. So it's a bunch of a few different things, but that's how it started. 
and uh, the way they had described the role or how I envisioned the, the role and the person coming to help, it was something that was really, really exciting and feeling for me at the time. And so I took the plunge. That's really how it happened. It, it wasn't a, not, not a, not your standard story where, you know, Headhunter reaches out and says, Hey, you look like you've got the right background for this, but there's something that evolved over many conversations over a period of time. Yeah. And also myself having to eventually getting comfortable with the fact that I could execute and add value in this role. Well, there's, there's a lot of things that I'm, I'm excited to touch about there. I heard something about fundraising. I'm also keen to know a little bit more about, you know, how your unconventional background has actually perhaps helped you shape this role, right? Uh, which, which seems very unique. So if I understand it correctly, you're wearing actually two yes. hats uh, within Endowers, right? You do the CFO side of things. Uh, you also run the corporate BD side of things. Do you think that your experience in, you know, sort of having done lots of strategy work, BD work has actually uh, influenced the, the way that you have approached uh, running the company from a finance perspective? Yeah, I think I think your past experiences obviously shape kind of how you, your perspective on things, right? I think in my particular role, maybe I can start by describing a little bit. So as you mentioned, there are two main parts. There's a finance piece, which covers everything from, you know, kind of the bigger picture stuff, dealing with investors, uh, doing forecasts, fundraising, obviously these are all parts of it, right? All the way down to just making sure the finance ops works, everything from regulatory reporting, we're obviously a regulated entity that's regular reporting in Singapore, Hong Kong, both of both markets that we are in, down to, you know, even as simple as making sure that there's enough capital so that or enough cash so that so that employees get paid on time. I mean that's it's basically quite a wide range on the finance side. And then on the I guess I can broadly call it the business side of things. It ranges from everything from corporate. I mean, I basically cover the corporate segment. So anything from doing financial literacy programs, which is one of the core things that we do, which I think really sets us apart. We start with education as being one of the key pieces of uh, wealth management, right? Uh, All the way through to partnerships, whether it's partnerships with, you know, companies like yourself, Aspire, we've done some stuff together, down to more strategic partnerships where we're even talking about JVs and, and, and things like that. I think there is overlap in many, many areas, right? So I can touch on that. So things like JVs, there's obviously an overlap with, with the CFO role where you're talking about projections, you're talking about strategy in any case. So that's quite, that's quite a natural fit. And a lot of these conversations are anyway brought to us by investors or by people that want to invest in us as part of a, some kind of a partnership. There's a continuum, but I think there is some overlap in a lot of this stuff. And then coming back to kind of how my background shapes this, I think strategy is for, for me, given kind of my experience and where I've come from, that's always a big piece of it. So always asking, I always say that the one thing I learned from my consulting days is always asking, what's the so what? Right? So what about this? So what about that? What's this data? What does that show us? So I think that's, that's helpful. But yeah, I mean, even the fact that, I mean, this, this is a funny story. So I spent three years designing quantitative investment products. So I had to pick up things like option pricing and other, other things like quantitative investment and all that kind of stuff. And yesterday, I had to sit down and do basically option pricing because we're currently in a fundraising round, as you, as you kind of alluded to, Joel, and we, uh, we decided to go this round in a convertible note. And so when you book it in, the, in, our, in our books and, and records, you have to book the convertible note, of course, mostly as debt, because that's why it is. It's a debt instrument. But because it's convertible, that's also an equity option element of it, an embedded derivative, if you will. And our auditors ask us to, to basically value, do a valuation of that embedded derivative. So I have to go and figure out how to, how to do that. And I eventually modeled it as a strip of three options. I had to figure out the payoff, you know, back to basics, payoff diagram, three options, two long, one short, and then apply 
uh, input parameters through a Black-Scholes model to come up with a number. So we were able to do that. And then after the end state of that is to pass that number down to my financial controller to say, hey, these are of the amount we raised, this amount is that, this amount is a derivative. So that was really quite interesting and also quite fulfilling because I realized that not many, probably not many CFOs can do that. It's really a result of my kind of my having taken a detour as a as an equity structure uh, that allowed me to do that. I'm not not that it's a big piece of my role or anything. I guess I would only have to do this perhaps once a year, year end, where the auditors ask, "What is the valuation of the embedded derivative of your convertible note?" Yes. And I think we'll see. go, what, what do you mean, right? Uh, and probably get some external advice to to do that, which is perfectly fine. But in in this case, uh, I just decided to to do it first. Uh, we may still get external external to value it if it's a large enough or material enough number. And and actually, I think it's something that you'll find more and more with uh, with the CFO role. And I think something we'll discuss later on. But it's such a broad role that no, like depend regardless of your background, I think there's no single person that would have covered all the, the all the different elements of that role in any case historically. So you're looking for someone not necessarily with deep. I mean, obviously you need a sufficient level of uh, background, technical and quantitative and financial knowledge. Otherwise, you can't do the role at all. But beyond that, you wouldn't be necessarily looking for someone who's done everything that your role would throw at you from day one. Because I think that person yeah. just doesn't exist in this in this day and age. Right. Especially like in, in an environment of a startup, perhaps, right? Where, you know, you're doing a lot of things for the first time. Uh, there's always yeah. sort of that need to, to figure out something for the first time. Yeah. And it, and actually, you know, when I when I talk to a lot of CFOs, one of the interesting things that I think about or, or or that I come across is that that role of a CFO actually changes depending on what company you're sitting in. Right? So what I really wanted to ask you was, you know, what what does what is that role like in in Endowas, right? And for for listeners out there, uh, you know, Endowas, you know, one of the big personal wealth tech brands in the region, right? I think they're, they're in a couple of markets, Singapore, Hong Kong as well recently. And, you know, they, they basically help you invest, uh, I think, through a really unique way, which uh, which Dom can probably share more. It's, it's pretty much taken the, the, the wealth tech market by storm. What's the role of, of a CFO there? Are you managing sort of the investments? Are you managing more of the, the management account side of the business? What, what What's in that scope for you? That's a difficult question to answer, and it, it also just cha- it changes over time and depends um, a lot on uh, what the founders are looking at. Well, for, for me, there are a couple of things, all right? So the first is that whenever something needs a, a model, ultimately that comes to me and kind of my team. So we express everything we need in, in terms of a financial model, right? Whether it's a budget. So budget is very specific. Budget is this year's forecast, right? Or it's a longer projection where you use that for for uh, for investors or for others. So I think that's kind of the crux of, you know, because you have a, a set of numbers, you can do uh, you can do pros and cons, you can do analysis, you can you can describe things quantitatively. I think that's really the, the base of it. It's a, it's a form of problem solving, but with, with uh, not to say that, you know, obviously in the start, everyone does problem solving. But I think when it comes to numbers, that's kind of my, that's kind of my domain. Lab. So that's one, that's one area. The role evolves over time. We did an acquisition last year, for example, of a Hong Kong-based external asset manager. So basically an asset manager offline, very different from our model, but slightly different segment. But we feel that that's the way to, to digitize kind of a higher net worth segment to, to acquire and to and to grow that segment independently on its own and integrate that into endowers over time. So, I mean, when we did that acquisition, 
well. I mean, my role also in, involved trying to look at, you know, what are there any red flags, do, doing due diligence, basically, and then thinking through a little bit about the integration aspects of, of that role. And that integration kept, carries on to this day. It's really quite, I think, I think you've hit the nail on the head, Joel. It's, it's really quite broad and really limited only by kind of the number of hours in the day to try to, to get stuff done. It's, it's interesting because it, it, it sounds also like, you know, you're kind of the person that uh, people go to and, and, and consult or ask for, for a model. And, and I'm, I'm sure your sort of business background also lends to building that, right? Uh, the ability to, to speak uh, to internal stakeholders and, and so on. Part of the role also is to, part of the role really is also to talk to, speak to internal, talk to my peers, uh, and also obviously to external stakeholders. That's, that's a big, big piece of it. Uh, and really to support the founders in yeah, just whatever shape or form. You know, where necessary as an advisor or just to execute stuff. Yeah, it's a it's a broad it's a broad role. It depends on uh, where you can add value at a particular point in time. Got it. And and for you, how how do you think about resource management or, or you know resource allocation in that sense? Um, what 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 are some of the top things on your mind right now? Resource allocation. So obviously, everyone is very focused on their bottom line and their cost base. So with that, maybe first I want to congratulate Aspire for. You think profitability, that's huge news. I mean, really, it's huge news in the fintech space. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, that's that's really, really impressive. So in terms of resource allocation, we, we have to look very closely at where do we expect, where do we expect revenues to grow and really just prioritize that. And obviously, growth comes at a cost. For us, it's anything from headcount cost to, to marketing cost, right? I'm sure you're very familiar with that. You can turn on the taps and get more growth, but is it, what kind of growth is it? Your resource allocation in terms of, putting bets on where the growth is. I mean, to be very frank, I think the founders take a lead in kind of steering the strategy there. Um, and we just, I mean, a lot of us, I, I myself included, play a supporting role there, but also looking very closely at what's the cost and how does the cost translate to drivers, right? So I think when you describe or articulate financials to an external party, also sometimes internal, but external as well, tend to break things down to key drivers. That's what we have to watch very, very closely. Things like your CAC, for example, or your cost of IT, uh, cost of your systems, articulated as a you know, cost per user, for example, just so that you can really articulate the key drivers of what your where, where your where your revenues and profitability is going to come from, particularly for those of us who are still trying to hit break even and, and then get up that cost, get up that uh, growth curve. I think it's very important because, yeah, I think in this environment, it's mightily important to to have, to demonstrate that path to profitability and then to execute against that. What are some of the unique challenges and, and opportunities that you've come across so far, right, in, in your journey? Building, you know, a fintech company uh, in Singapore and beyond. You're talking about business uh, opportunities or? The challenges, right? Uh, so has it been difficult to maybe expand, acquire sort of, you know, licenses or, you know, expand to new markets? Yeah, I think expanding to new markets is, uh, it's, it, it's more challenging than many people realize, ourselves included. So I think as you mentioned earlier, Joel, we just launched in Hong Kong. So that journey started quite, actually quite a long time ago. Our licenses were initially, I think we got a license in at the end of 2021. And I mean, we sometimes joke about this. Um, not 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 too seriously, but we do joke about oh, it's just cut and paste the product. We should just translate over, right? Just localize it. Uh, it really ended up being almost like a completely new build to some extent. It took us till 
from the end of 2021 through till our public launch was actually only in April this year, so two months ago. So I think, yeah, there are a lot, there are a lot of challenges. Uh, I think things will get easier, may get easier. I hope they get easier. Uh, obviously, your first overseas market is a first, your first overseas market. But I mean, even saying that, your first, your home market is also your first market. I think there are challenges every step of the way. Yeah, but as you say, there are also opportunities. Just have to keep your eyes out. I can share a few, a few examples. I mean, as we as we went along, uh, I, this is more linked to kind of my role, so I see this more closely. Opportunities do pop up on the corporate side of things. So as you mentioned, we're quite well known as a wealth tech, individual wealth tech platform, retail platform really for uh, individuals to invest and, and invest their wealth and grow their wealth. Uh, what people don't know is that we can also open accounts for non-individuals, whether it's corporates or uh, in some cases, charities and, and others. So we found, a, we found actually quite a lot of opportunity there as well, because that's also an underserved segment that uh, the banks just aren't good at serving. And we're actually, we're actually quite, quite capable. Yeah, as we go along, we find all these, all these niche areas and people that, uh, that love us because our business model is actually very different. We're very, very aligned with the end investor. So in terms of uh, fees and, and all that, our charging model is completely aligned with the interests of the end investor. And so, yeah, I think that's, uh, that's actually a segment that we've had, we've had some recent traction with. Yeah, the opportunities and we can expand that in a more, scalable way, B2B or, or others, I think that would be fantastic. That's interesting. It's like you, you've taken sort of the underlying tech, right? And you just applied it to, to different segments or different parts of the market. How, how, how much of that fundamental structuring that you talked about, right? That Endowers is really aligned with sort of the, the customers that they serve. Like how much of that do you think has, has, has driven growth in the business? I think for us, that really is front and center. And it's also what attracted me to the platform to begin with. So, I mean, just to make a quick contrast with those of your more typical bank or platform, if you were, buy to, if you were to buy a fund or investment product from a bank, uh, first of all, you get hit with a sales charge. But people understand that. So that's, that's kind of fine. We have no sales charge. So right off the bat, we're, you know, that's already a plus. But what's much more insidious than that is that when you buy a fund through a bank or a platform, the fund manager, and this is, takes place all over Asia, Singapore, Hong Kong, and others. The fund manager actually pays the bank. And the way they do that, where does the money come from? It comes from your returns. The way they do that is by charging you a higher fee per annum. I think as you know, when you, when you buy a fund, there's a management fee. But what you may not know is that there are different fee levels, right? So when you buy a fund from a, from a bank, that you, you, you get put into what's known as a retail share class, which is a higher cost share class. And then the part that most people don't know about is that the fund manager will pay the bank. Typically half of the management fee goes to a distribution fee to the bank. We think this, com this completely misaligns interest because you would then be pushing products, uh, incentivized to push products. I'm not saying everyone does that, but there's an incentive therefore to push products which have a higher distribution fee that the bank can collect. Versus the mm. products are the best. And so from the get-go, our business model, actually our innovation is as much the business model that's different as well as the tech to enable that. Right. So I feel that mm -hmm. uh, it, it's sometimes the understated piece of it. So our business model is different in the sense that we say, hey, we don't want to collect money this way. We want to use a better method, which is actually what's uh, typically used in countries like the US or Australia where I charge you a direct fee. Now, we don't like to use that in Asia or at least the banks, I've been in banking for a long time, right? Banks and others don't like to do this because the perception is that the end investors don't like to see a fee. So they prefer to hide the fee, particularly if it's a completely hidden fee, like a management fee 
And then you have a disclosure at the bottom, which is never read by anybody. So from the get-go, we wanted to give best products to you. So we, we offer what's known as the institutional share class, where the fees are could be as little as one-third of the retail share class. I mean, it's really that different. We're talking about quite a significant difference, and that's paid over time, right? But instead, we will charge you a clear, clean, transparent fee. And of course, it takes a lot of time and effort to explain what the fee is. And a lot of people, it takes time to explain that it's not, you're actually saving money through this approach because we then share with you what we feel are the best products for you, not what was the best product for me in terms of my remuneration. And that's important. People don't really understand that, but uh, or don't realize that the impact. But really, I think the incentives drive, incentives drive behavior uh, in this space. And so just coming back to your question, Joel, I think it takes time, but once we are able to meet our individuals, but certainly also corporates or in many cases, charities, we have a very unique charities offering. We expand on what the, what the standard offering is, but there's a lot of other stuff that we bring to the table. But once we sit down and explain to them our, our thinking, our philosophy and our business model, we find that many people are attracted to, to our way of doing things. And uh, the fund managers in particular, Love the fact that we're just all about talking about their products, not about how much they'll pay us. Because we don't get paid by fund managers. We get paid only by the end investor. Uh, and so they've also invited us to come in to speak to, to the employees. And we have created a product for specifically for fund management employees themselves, which probably won't go through here. But I think that's kind of like looking for opportunities. And these are areas of opportunity that, that come up. In, in the course of doing business for us. Maybe touching a little bit also on M&A, you know, you, you mentioned that you guys acquired a, a company in Hong Kong as well. Is that a, a big part of your growth strategy? It's a part of our strategy because in markets like Hong Kong and also Singapore, I think that segment will take a long time to digitize. Uh, so to do it organically could be quite difficult. But at the same time, it's a very significant chunk of the market. And so we also want to bring our philosophy, our fee-only philosophy, and our digitization, right? Just making things, making it e- cheaper and easier to uh, to serve and bring those benefits to that segment as well. So we feel that that will help us to accelerate our growth uh, significantly. So yeah, I mean, actually the Hong Kong one, Hong Kong acquisition was quite uh, opportunistic. I mean, it's not to say that we didn't have an M&A strategy in place, but I think the way that that came out was quite opportunistic. Yeah, but there's also a lot of work, uh, I'm sure as you know, Joel, with uh, acquisitions as well as due diligence. Absolutely. And I'm going to sort of shift a little bit. You know, we're talking about sort of managing these client funds and, you know, challenges and opportunities in the market. You know, I'm sure you guys have also been uh, very in tune with sort of the macro developments of late, right? Have, have you seen any of that impact on of the macro environment on on how users are taking to, to you guys, right? For example, you know, you, you see stuff like SBB falling, users, you know, getting scared about where their funds or how their funds are held. Has, has that impacted you guys in any way? Oh, I mean, the SVB issue, actually, I think has been a surprisingly got net positive for us. I've actually been able to acquire some corporate clients who were previously with uh, Credit Suisse, for example, which I think quite surprising for us like, in the sense that we are actually a very small young platform we're actually able to uh, but obviously because of the challenges that credit suits are facing able to win some business over I think the bigger challenge for us as well as and it's not unique to to us it's really a wealth uh, wealth management challenge was you know ever since markets uh, tanked last year uh, the interest in investing in general this is not digital investing this is general uh, wealth management and investing has really just fallen significantly 
So although, I mean, we were able to still grow through that, but what was previously a bit of a tailwind in 2021, 2020, 2021, became a bit of a headwind. So it's difficult, more difficult to acquire new clients. Clients that we acquire take longer to invest. Uh, they invest smaller amounts to start and perhaps take longer to do a recurring investment and all that. So that whole cycle has kind of just expanded. We think they'll come back. And so we'll just keep doing what we're doing. I think markets will normalize. Markets are starting to normalize, to be quite frank, right? Yeah. So that's that. But I think the whole SVB thing, I think we're quite fortunate in that. There are a couple of things that, that work in our favor. So I think the first is that we we actually don't touch clients' money. We In Singapore, at least, we are uh, just a financial advisor. And the custodian of your assets is actually UOB Keyhand, which is a very well-known name. So your assets are held there. And the second is that we're through through this partnership, we're also able to offer CPF. So I think a lot of people, I mean, the first uh, first digital advisor were the only ones of any size, really, a digital advisor to, to offer CPF. And we have quite a unique offering there. And I think people just think about CPF, and that's a huge trust builder for us. They think that, well, if endowers can offer CPF, then, well, I think we can trust them with, with our money, whether it's personal money or company money. Um, of course, I mean, we believe there's some truth in that. But what I'm saying is that the perception also helps. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I see the brand. <laughs> you see that. So yeah, so SVB, I think, funny enough, it can also be an opportunity. Yeah, no, I, I think I, I've definitely seen sort of this uh, trend, uh, even on our side, right? Where, you know, clients, if the company has sort of practiced strong corporate governance to begin with, uh, partnered with the right sort of tier one banks, that actually lends uh, credence and lends weight to, to their offering. Yes. And uh, yeah, so I, I think it was, I mean, definitely to, to your benefit that you guys had set that up early with strong sort of financial partners yeah. and even sort of, yeah, that, that, that opportunity to, you know, tap into, into CPF as a source of funds that that's definitely, I mean, for me, I, when I first saw that, I thought that was really innovative actually. <laughs> but it took a lot of effort and a lot of time. And so you can always go back and debate, oh, should we have done that? Or should we have just launched first in parallel? I think it's a... Uh, it's a, well, it's a case study for future generations, I guess. But we, we took the fact that CPF was, was important and we, we took two years to get that, uh, get that right before we actually launched. But you know, many of our peers' digital platforms have launched without CPF. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a, yeah, a trade-off. Yeah, I mean, my two cents at the time is also like, you know, there, there, were, there, there were players in the space, right? Yes. And uh, it gave you guys differentiation. It, it brought you guys trust. Uh, so I, yeah. Uh, yeah, probably well pleased. Uh, <laughs> Let's see. I, I hope I hope you're right. I hope you're right. In in light of today's macro climate, right? And you know, as as you were, you were talking about, you you were in, in in the midst of a fundraising round right now. How how has the macro climate affected that that fundraising round? It's made fundraising actually very very challenging. I think maybe I mean not not everyone can raise hundred million dollar rounds anymore, Joel. <laughs> or at least not as easily as we could as in the past. As I mentioned, I joined the Endowers um, 2021. Actually, we, I joined right after Series A. And we actually managed to close a second round. Uh, unfortunately, we did that. We closed a second round in at the end of 2021 as well. So I can contrast 2021. We closed it. In, we did a convertible note then as well in November. And we're actually in the midst of closing our another round now. Close most of it already, but there's a little bit more to go and you know, probably close it by the end of the month. It's a huge contrast. Could not be more different. In 2021, and I'm sure you guys have felt the same probably, people were practically throwing money at you. They were knocking on doors. We were being cold called left, right, and center. People who read about our Series A would, would go, oh, 
we missed it. We want to find out more. And and actually, that's in a way how our 2021, a later round, the convertible note uh, came about because it was true reverse inquiry and we thought it made a lot of sense. And thankfully, we, we, thankfully we raised that money as well because it helped us to tide over. But yeah, I think since since interest rates went up and um, funding basically went, uh, funding became more difficult, something that's going to separate the, well, really going to separate the winners from the losers. Yeah, because back in the day, I think anyone, anyone could raise, almost anyone could raise. Maybe even start by taking us through a little bit of on, on that journey, right? Like, you know, we were, I think we were talking a little bit even before this about, you know, it sounded like you had a, a process, right? That, that you, you put in place and, and, you know, especially when times get, get challenging, I think sometimes it's important to, to have that process. But if you could take us through sort of that journey, how you, how you started approaching this, this round in particular, Maybe that could be a good start. Yeah, sure. So what we what we wanted to do was to bring in a new investor because our like I mentioned, we did a convertible round in twenty twenty one, and then what happened there was we were obviously expecting to do a an equity round, a Series B for us in this case. So we spoke to people that we've been engaged with already. And of course, by then the market had already quite changed significantly. We started conversations in the second half of last year, twenty twenty two, and they were just taking much longer, and you, you could feel that the uh, investors were much more hesitant. The bar had, had raised significantly. I think there's obviously challenges for the VCs themselves or PE firms themselves to deploy that capital. I think their own internal bar has also raised when you bring something to IC, has to be a slam dunk. Yeah, you hear of deals that get turned down at, at IC a lot more than previously. So what eventually evolved was we, we went back and it, I, I think the, the, the process evolved for us as well. So eventually we went back to our our current investors, existing investors, and we put together something from starting with that. Because what we realized, what we understand, and this is, I think, the right strategy, was that we realized that by having, first of all, starting starting around with your existing investors and then others following on. Uh, so having the investors lead, existing investors lead, is actually the right way to do this. Because it sends a very strong signal that, that yeah, I, I, we, we continue to believe in the growth of the story. The people who understand us the best and long and have known us the longest, continue to bet on the company and their growth plans because we're executing. That's the story and the narrative that, you know, that, that sense, right? Mm. Uh, of course, they also have a, they're already invested. So they have a bit of a investor. It's a bit easier, so to speak as well, right? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, nonetheless, getting IC approval and, and going through that process still sends a very strong signal because they're, it's so yeah, hard. It's definitely them. a good starting platform. So, yeah, I think finally when we, when we did that and uh, our, lead investor gave us a term sheet and we got through that process. It was still a hard slog to be very frank with you. Given that we had gone through with these investors once or twice in 2021, I was surprised at how difficult it was for the third time. And yeah, but uh, it's something, it's, it's just a, it's a function of the market, I suppose. Uh, everyone's just being extra cautious. But I think partly because it was such, so people understand that the bar has gone up so much that when we cross that bar, that really sends a strong signal as well. And then we've had, obviously since then, new investors then come on with this. And then we have a few others that are still in the work uh, that we that we expect to close hopefully quite soon. And that's fantastic because it will set us up for our growth trajectory for the next, you know, two, three, four years, I think. For the founders or CFOs that are, are listening, right? Like I'm sure, you know, quite a few of them have also been through, you know, similar journeys, not found it easy, probably will find it even harder in this climate. At what point, should they take a signal from the market, right? At what point do you say, like, 
oh, let's keep trying. Let's talk to the next one. At what point do you say like, oh, it's, it's not working? Did you have any way to think about that? I mean, you talked about this. I think you had to kiss like a, a thousand frogs to find your princess, right? I think, I think you, you just keep talking to investors. I think that's the, that's the way to, to keep going. Because at the end of the day, you just need one. And so who knows, maybe the introduction. And you know, when your people will always introduce uh, new prospects to you. Yeah, I think unless there's a strong reason not to, not to do it, you just keep meeting. Because even if not for this round, it could be for the next round, it could be for, it could be a partnership, that could be something else that, some other angle, right? So you just keep meeting people. I don't know if you have a choice because, I, no, I mean, <clears throat> I mean, obviously you want to meet new investors, but if you are not successful, I mean, there's, there's no, then there's no option of, I, I don't know what the other option is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I hear you. Yeah, unless you're in an enviable position where you have the ability to, 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 turn off some taps and perhaps become profitable. I think many, many fintechs in general are still along, some of depends on the stage of evolution. Many are still a long way away and growth is the only way out. So yeah, it really depends. So at some point you go back to your existing investors and, and see if they can help help you to get through to the next stage. I think this funding environment will improve. Uh, rates will not stay where they are forever. The macro environment will, will become easier. I mean, maybe not back to kind of earlier stage, but it will not be as difficult as it was last year. I think, and then, and so they're thinking whether the storm, yeah, those that survive will will be in a much better position. And if you if you take the macro environment out of it, do you think it gets easier to raise as the rounds go along? I think the milestones that you need to hit become more become more and more challenging, right? <clears throat> and and why is that? It's because in your earlier round you say, well, okay, we'll take this money, this this is a, this is a use of funds. I'm going to expand this market. I'm going to you know target a segment. I'm going to go to whatever B two B. And these are my milestones I'll hit. You make all those promises. And so the next round, they're going to look back and say, hey, how much of that have you actually been able to execute? I think obviously if you're able to keep hitting your targets and so on, it will become easier for you. But yeah, I think later rounds bring their own challenges. I think different sets of investors, as you go further down, uh, they become more sophisticated. Uh, they also ask, they, they, do, they do deeper due diligence. It's kind of the, the, way, to, the, the way to explain it. And if, if you were to do back of the napkin math, how many investors would you tell, you know, a <laughs> listener, right? Like they should, you know, is it 50? Is it 100? What, that, that they should speak to? Yeah. I I, I don't know. I, I'd say it's, uh, I think you should speak to everyone that is potentially interested in your segment, your industry. And that's often, in, I mean, if you're based in Singapore, headquartered in Singapore, often uh, in the 50 to 100 range, right? I think we've probably spoken to more than 50. I know CFOs at other firms. Some of them are kind of later stage than us who come up with a shortlist. And, you know, one guy I spoke with recently said, oh, I've, I've covered my shortlist and it's 80 people, 80 investors. It's the kind of number. I think we're fortunate too that there are quite a number of uh, VCs that based here, even if they're overseas VCs, that they have people here. And so it's not that difficult to meet. But of course, nowadays you have Zoom and others as well the first meeting but it's 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 i mean it's a tiring process it's like going on first dates right yeah no i mean a uh, big congrats and hats off to you guys right uh definitely raising in, in this environment is, is no easy we're not thing. we're not done yet but i'm, I'm glad we're okay. almost we're about three quarters of the way i think have you seen sort of the role of, of cfos evolve over time you know how 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 would you envision sort of the modern cfo or where that CFO function is, is moving towards in the future. Yeah, sure. 
So I, I see I see my role. I see my role as a bit of a, being a problem solver, obviously in a specific domain and with a specific set of you know, like I mentioned earlier, I think modeling and coming out with the quantitative aspect of things is something that's expected. But at the end of the day, you're a problem solver. As I as I also mentioned earlier, right? It's not the role has evolved to 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 an extent that it's very unlikely that one person would have seen the whole range of things that have come up in that particular role before joining. So you're not hiring necessarily for experience anymore. You're hiring for ability to problem solve and to evolve and adapt and to and to move things forward, right? I think more and more, I'm, I'm I think the role is evolving to one where uh, the CFO has to be quite adaptable and hopefully having a broad range of experience to help with that area. Because what's going to happen is that you can always you can always get experts to come and help you along your journey, right? I mean, you also have to be quite smart as to when you engage those experts because oftentimes it comes with a with a price tag attached to it, right? So you don't you can't say, oh, great new problem, I'm going to do this or do that, get hired, hire the, you know, some external advice all the time. There are things you have to do yourself, but I think being able to, to problem solve, I think is really the key. And then when something technical, when you realize that it makes sense for someone external to come, come in to help you, I think that's, that's always available as an option. That to me is kind of how the, to me, how the CFO role has evolved. And, and sometimes people ask me, yeah, but you're not, Dom, you don't have, you're, you're not an accountant. So I, I know enough accounting to be dangerous, so to speak. But, but I think this big topic of, of, of 2023 as well about ChatGPT and and all that you can just you can find out a lot you can you can actually train yourself up on a lot of these technical topics such that you understand the implications a lot better than even if you were to go to an external person who's done something for a long time pros and cons of uh either you're doing acquisition you have goodwill and intangible asset what's the pros and cons of having these two things one versus the other in many cases you can get that information for yourself even if you have not done it before technology can help you get answered to yourself now versus having to go to an external party to help you with every step of the way. Of course, at the end of the day, you might still end up with, you know, might still need a valuation report or something along those lines. But you'll be, I'm, I'm just saying that nowadays, there are many, many tools there that can mitigate the fact that you've not worked as an accountant for many years, which I think was the earlier perception of what a, what a CFO should look like. And so that role has also evolved from something that's a lot more technical and accounting based to something that's a lot broader and problem solving based. If you're if you're fortunate enough anyway to have a strong financial controller, I think that's still very key. So that person will handle all the like most of the you know kind of the basic accounting stuff and allow you to add value in more different ways, like strategy and other areas as well. Nice. No, I really like that view. And what are some of the, the trends that you've got your eye on? You know, you spoke a little bit about AI. <laughs> so I think I think AI I think AI is a, is a very big trend, right? It's a, it's a very big topic and one that's very, very interesting. But I think a more basic one, which uh, I think a lot of my peers have to grapple with, are things like cloud computing at the moment. So things like, you know, cloud is a huge um, expense item, if you think about it, the traditional sense. How do you make sure you get value out of it? What does it enable? That's a whole topic in itself. I've actually, you know, worked with my VP uh, of engineering. We've given a few webinars on this exact topic and how cloud is something that really enables you to rapidly prototype and iterate. And I think that role, coming back to your earlier question as well, I think working very closely with, with your counterparts in the organization outside to understand things a lot better, a lot more deeply than maybe people in the past have had to, to understand it and then to iterate through. So for example, we talked about things like classic uh, one-year budgeting cycle being something that's dead. You kind of have to do it much more iteratively. So those are some of the trends that, that I see. So new technology, working more closely with 
your you know, technology counterparts. I mean, this is obviously something very relevant to our space. Then iterating through very rapidly on cost and on budgets, something that's a lot more dynamic rather than static. These are perhaps some of the, the trends I see on, in terms of work-related activities. Nice. And, and, you know, to the aspiring sort of CFOs out there, what, what, what advice would you give them? Ah, be flexible with your career and uh, take opportunities when they come. I think that's, uh, yeah, and I think even, even opportunities that don't look like they could directly help you, I think will still strengthen your kind of your problem-solving skill set. Don't just look at a kind of a traditional path. And I think there are many paths to, many paths to, uh, to becoming a CFO. That's what you uh, aspire to be. Lah. That would be my, my advice. All right. Yeah, with that, you know, Dom, i like to thank you for, for your time, uh, for being on the show. I really enjoyed our conversation, right? Uh, big congrats to, to you and the team also for, you know, being at that uh, final last mile of fundraising, uh, no mean feat uh, in, in this environment. And, uh, you know, I, I, I really appreciated the, the way you, you shared about your view of the modern CFO and how you embodied that, you know, someone who is a problem solver, right? In this day and age, uh, as, as a CFO, like you've mentioned, things change and, and, and move so quickly uh, that you don't always uh, come across a problem that you've, you've already solved before, right? So it's extremely important to, to know, uh, to have that problem-solving hat uh, as, as you deal with, with problems for the first time. And, and also the, the, the fact that being a CFO today is, is a much broader role, right? Uh, it goes beyond uh, the basics, which is still very important, right? Having the right uh, financial controls, like you said, but also the ability to align or find alignment with both peers internally and stakeholders externally to, to add business value, right? which your background has, has really sort of uh, put you in a, in a unique position to be able to do. So thanks again. And, and it's, been, uh, it's been wonderful having you on the show. Joel, it's been a pleasure. I hope we have the chance to do this again. Um, yeah, and I'm sure we'll be seeing a lot more of each other. Once again, thanks for joining us on Aspire CFO Talks. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and follow us and our guests on LinkedIn. That's it for this episode. And we'll see you on the next CFO Talks.